A very good morning to you all. It's great to see you all this morning. My name is Neil. I'm married to the amazingly wonderful Kate. Together we attempt to serve and lead this amazing community of people of the Southwest Island Vineyard. As you'll often hear us say if you've been here for a little while, the Bible is our gold standard, it is our yardstick, it is our plumb line. Now, whilst that's all well and good in theory, if you've ever read this book, the Bible, you'll know that it can be pretty tricky. And, you know, whilst there's chapter after chapter of just some of the most uh, incredible and finest exhortations and encouragements known on earth, there are also uh, plenty of passages that feel like they're sort of impenetrable. And so this morning, I want us to take a swim out into the murky depths and take a look at... I don't know why I'm doing this. Um, take a look at some of the more challenging texts. Hooray. And ask, you know, what do we do when we come across something in the Bible that we really struggle with? You know, something that we kind of read and sort of makes us scratch our heads and say, what the heck is this about? You know, how could a loving God who loves us with an everlasting love say this thing whatever it may be, that just feels so unjust and so strange and honestly just kind of offensive. You know, maybe it's about, I don't know, something like an eye for an eye or all of the violence in the Old Testament or the treatment of women. I mean, there's a list. There's a long list. And the reason I raise all of this from the get-go is that we're going to take a look at uh, some of Paul's words to the church in Colossae, the Colossian church, which I'm pretty sure will offend probably most of us. <laughs> uh, texts about wives submitting to their husbands. Uh, texts about slavery. Texts that over the years, and still to this day, have basically been used so many times by people in power to oppress and subjugate others. So what do you do when you stumble across something in the Bible that just seems to make absolutely no sense whatsoever? Okay, so let's dive in. Uh, let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the scriptures. We pray that your spirit would come and you would fill us with your presence. You would help us and you would lead us and you would guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians 3, starting in verse 18, going through to chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ Jesus you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. 
Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so there's a pretty good chance that there's something in there that's going to rattle at least a couple of, cha- a couple of cages in this room. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting uh, to the Lord. That's a verse that's been used time and time again. Uh, to justify not only male supremacy, uh, but even the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse of women. Even verse 20 is a problem for us. Uh, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Okay, does that include submitting to abuse at the hands of a parent? But we're almost all certainly going to have a problem with verse 22. Slaves obey your earthly masters in everything. I mean, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with these and the very many other passages of Scripture that we read and kind of go, what? Uh, Well, maybe it might be a good idea to tackle some sort of basic strategies for interpreting the Bible in general, uh, but especially for handling some of these more tricky and more difficult and challenging texts. And let's just start with some basic principles of Bible interpretation. And the first thing is humility. Um, Despite the very many tricky bits, most of us probably believe that the scriptures are useful, profitable. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 famously says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul says, in for what is many another, many people another challenging text, Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed. And so as we follow Jesus, one thing that we can't do is just chuck out, you know, the bits that we don't really like or simply dismiss those bits that we find weird. Instead, we have to find ways to approach the Bible with humility. And so we wrestle with the tricky texts. Um, We grapple with them. It's like chewing on something that, like a tough piece of meat, and we just keep chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing until we get all of the goodness out of it as we try to make sense of it all. And then secondly, there's context. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project puts it like this. He says, if you were traveling to a foreign country that you've never been to before, you would expect to experience some differences. And you would prepare in certain ways. So, you know, if you're heading off to, I don't know, the Middle East or uh, to Southeast Asia, uh, you'd maybe, I don't know, get a like a little phrase book or something. You might read a few Lonely Planet guides if they still exist, or you'd watch some stuff on YouTube. You just kind of do what you can to try and find out what this place is like. You know, we probably wouldn't expect, I don't know, people in Delhi or Riyadh or Yangon to sound like us or to dress like us or to eat like us or behave like us. Tim Mackey goes on. He says, the Bible is another country. The Bible is another country, and we should treat it like one. That doesn't diminish its capacity to speak to us, he says. I think it actually enhances its ability to say things that we never thought to think before. Reading the Bible is like a cross-cultural experience. And if we're even remotely going to understand any of it, 
we have to step into a different cultural mindset to even begin to understand what the authors are really trying to say. And here's a, a third principle of Bible interpretation, and that's intention. Um, scripture is to be interpreted according to the authors, the writer's original intention. And so when we're looking at some of these challenging texts, we might want to start with questions like, you know, how did people living back in this context, in this situation with Colossians, how did people living back in the first century feel when they heard Paul's letter to the Colossians? You know, what did the writer, what did the author intend the audience to hear? So just three things, humility, context, and intention. And so with these principles in mind, you know, what do we do when we find a text super tricky? Well, first, um, can I suggest the first thing that we do is slow down. Like, slow down. Take a moment. It could be that what we're reading may not actually be saying what we think it's saying. So let's take a pause. Let's take a slow down. Let's, let's take a moment. And then the second thing is interpret. We have to do the hard work of trying to interpret the Bible in context, especially how the text that we're reading sits alongside both God's original purpose in creation and his unfolding plan for his coming kingdom. Very often we find something challenging in Scripture. Uh, when we find something challenging in Scripture, we have to ask, we have to ask ourselves the question, was, like, was this part of God's original plan? Was this part of God's original intention? Is this part of God's plan for the kingdom in its fullness? Or is what we're reading some kind of cultural accommodation due to, I don't know, maybe the spiritual condition of the original recipients? So slow down and try to interpret. Okay, so with all of that as a backdrop, and I'm just kind of putting it off really, let's try and tackle um, probably the toughest part of this passage first the bits about slavery, and I'm just going to hand over to Jez Nugent, um, <laughs> and we'll see if we can apply some of these principles. Here's what we read in Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Sometimes the difficulty that we have with the Bible is that it's not always necessarily saying what we think it's saying. You know, when we read these verses, I don't know about you, but my brain, my thoughts immediately go straight to thoughts of empire. I, I immediately start thinking about slavery in the 18th and 19th century, or I think of modern slavery today. And I, say, I guess what we're really wanting to know is, is, is Paul saying that God approves of slavery? Is that, is that what this is about? Uh, and that's how slave owners interpreted this passage. This was incredibly convenient for them. Uh, but this would be, I think, one of those times where we just can't ignore the cultural and historic differences between the writers and readers of Scripture in, in the first century Roman Empire and the readers of Scripture today. Remember, when we open the Bible, we're visiting a foreign, it's like we're visiting a foreign country. So we need to kind of pull out our guidebooks and our phrase books and, and try to learn what Paul's readers in the first century might have understood when they heard these words. You know, what was Paul trying to say? Well, um, I'm no historian by any means, but from what I can gather, you know, across most of the first century Roman Empire, slaves weren't distinguished by race or clothing or speech uh, as they were at the height of the slave trade. 
the wages people were paid, whether you were slave or not, uh, were often the same. Uh, some slaves in the Roman Empire held and ran their own businesses. Occupations for slaves ranged from definitely, absolutely hard conditions in mines to being doctors and civil servants and philosophers and artisans. And so when we read about slavery in Paul's letters, we shouldn't necessarily immediately think of the Atlantic slave triangle, where slavery was based upon race and kidnapping and torture and brutality. Now, some of you might quite rightly be saying, I really don't care how different Roman slavery was from British slavery. It's simply unthinkable that one human being could own another. It's unthinkable that one individual person is another person's property. Why didn't Paul simply say, you know, this needs to end? Why doesn't Paul just like incite and, and call for a revolt? And again, when we take time to wrestle with the text of the scripture, we, we may find that Paul was not condoning slavery. Um, as a Jew, Paul would know well enough that slavery was never God's intention. It was never part of God's original plan. It was never part of creation, and it will never be part of the fullness of the kingdom. There were no slaves in Eden, and Paul knew that there will be no slavery in heaven. Uh, Paul knew that slavery was this foul system brought about because we chose to reject God's simple commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, Paul knew that slavery was never God's design for this world. And as a Jew, Paul also knew the central story and the central narrative of the Exodus. God setting a slave people free. Paul knows that slavery was never part of God's plan to start with, that God is a God who frees slaves, and that when God ushers in his kingdom in its fullness, there will be no slavery. So why on earth didn't Paul confront slavery? Well, I am guessing, but maybe it's because very much like Jesus, Paul's approach to confronting oppressive social structures was utterly subversive. His approach, very similar to Jesus' approach, was submit and subvert. Submit and subvert. You see, in Paul's day, there was nothing that Romans feared more than a slave revolt or a rebellion. And if Paul had incited some kind of slave revolt, chances are the emperor would have immediately arrested every single Christian and every single slave, and either had them hacked to pieces or hanged on crosses. And so Paul's approach to this dreadfully fallen world was to submit and subvert. Paul speaks to slaves as people full of human dignity and says, submit and subvert. Paul doesn't approve of slavery. Just like Jesus, Paul hated slavery. And when you read across all of Paul's writings, you see these subversive elements kind of cropping up about slavery through the text. Paul teaches his churches, you know, that slaves are equal to free people. He says in Colossians 3, verse 11, here there is neither Gentile nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, 
but Christ in all and in all. In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then Paul puts this whole thing and this whole philosophy into practice by making slaves leaders in his churches over free people. Biblical scholars point out that many of the people that Paul greets in his letters as leaders of the church would have been slaves. The man who helped Paul write his letters to the Romans was called Tertius. Now, Tertius is a slave name, and it, it literally means third. You're not a person, you're just my third slave, Tertius. Uh, Paul writes to another slave, Quartus. That means fourth. Andronicus was a classic slave name in the Roman Empire, and he was a leader of one of Paul's churches. Paul subverts the institution of slavery by having slaves in the church as leaders over free people. And then Paul further subverts slavery by speaking to those who are masters. Have a look at Colossians 4 verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Paul's doing, what Paul's doing here is he's reminding slave masters that they themselves are slaves, fellow slaves of the same master, Jesus Christ. And he calls those people to show fairness and justice because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And when we consider the whole of Paul's teaching, challenging though certain aspects of it certainly are, it's no wonder that early leaders in the Christian church started working for the total abolition of slavery as soon as the Roman Empire declined. You know, at the first opportunity when powerless, oppressed individuals were no longer threatened by certain death or imprisonment, Christians began to work for abolition. Okay, so that's that. And then there's Paul's uh, helpful comments regarding marriage. Let's have a look at Colossians. Are you still with me? Yeah. Great. Colossians 3, verses 18 to 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, uh, lots of Christian church leaders, uh, most of whom are men, if you hadn't noticed, uh, believe that Paul is here giving us an eternal command regarding Christian marriage. That wives always ought to follow their husband's leadership at every juncture, in every culture, and in every age. Men are in charge, and women are always to follow their husband's lead. Now, this usually gets softened a little bit, you know, and there's usually a little... Um, thing that goes alongside it, which is like, you know, that doesn't mean to say, you know, that wives can't respectfully disagree with their husbands, or, you know, that husbands shouldn't listen to their wives' counsel, their wife's counsel, hopefully they haven't got wives, their wife's counsel or input from time to time. Um, most, a lot of teaching in the church will say that absolutely husbands are the head of the household, and wives are subordinate. And if there's a disagreement between husbands and wives, then the man is the tiebreaker. Is that what the Apostle Paul is saying? 
Like, do we genuinely believe that that's what the Apostle Paul is saying? Husbands and wives, you each get a vote, but if you disagree, then the husband gets a second vote. I mean, really? But how are we to understand this text? Um, back to what I said from the outset, you know, one way that we dig into these difficult texts is by considering God's original purposes and plans in creation. It's looking at the overarching narrative of the scriptures. You know, if we go back to Genesis 1, what do we find? Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created humanity in his own image. This is one of the most revolutionary statements ever made. Nowhere in the ancient Near East, or indeed for thousands of years after, did anyone else in any religion or any philosophy ever say what the Bible says on the first page, that all human beings bear the image of God and are called to be God's representatives and and God's uh, images and bearers of blessing and power and presence on the earth. On the first page of the Bible, we see that every human being is a bridge to the divine. Uh, You know, back in the ancient world, it was only the pharaoh or the king or the emperor who were said to bear the image of the divine, which is why it's so revolutionary. What the Bible is saying is so incredibly revolutionary because it's saying, no, it's it's not just the king who's the image of God. It's not just pharaoh. It's not just emperor. All of us are the image of God. All of us are called to represent God's good and loving rule in the world. All of us carry the Imago Dei. And perhaps even more revolutionary than that, it's not just men who serve as the intermediary between God and this world. It's women as well. Men and women are on equal footing, have equal power, equal authority, and are equal partners. There's no hint of any kind of men ruling over women on the first page of the Bible. But just a few pages later, in Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden we start to see the distortion of God's good and loving intention for humanity. And all of a sudden we see hierarchy and oppression finding their way in. Men uh, taking and wielding power and authority over women throwing their weight around. And this patriarchal rule of men domineering and women being oppressed has seeped into every culture, every structure, every institution, including and perhaps especially the church, right to this very day. And so how does Paul subvert, you know, the patriarchal structures of his day and therefore kind of the patriarchal structures of our day? Um, In Paul's fullest teaching on marriage in the New Testament, he writes something, again, truly revolutionary in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 21, he says this, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands and wives, each one of you is to voluntarily submit to the other. Husbands and wives, each one of you is to resist the temptation to try to rule over or dominate the other. Let your relationship be absolutely mutual. Share your power. Share your authority. In Colossians 3.12, Paul writes, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. 
You know, this relates not just to the way the church relates to one another, but the way husbands and wives are to relate to one another, how we're all to relate to one another. So just as I kind of come into land, maybe there's more to these tricky passages than uh, meets the eye. But let me just finish off with a couple of thoughts. Um, At different times in our lives, we may find ourselves in situations where we feel like we have very little power to change things. We may find ourselves, I don't know, in a family, uh, it could be in a university as a student or as a lecturer or where we work. It could even be as part of a church. It could even be as part of this church where it feels like some of the things that are being done, some of the things that are going on are just wrong or just unjust. What are we to do Uh, especially when we feel powerless to affect any kind of change. Well, maybe we need to uh, consider Paul's wisdom as a starting point for making a difference. And that's around this thing of submit and subvert. Yes, absolutely, be the very best employee, best family member, best teacher, lecturer, citizen, administrator, whatever it is, Be the best of that that you can possibly be, absolutely. But also do all you can to subvert. Wherever you have any power to make any difference, use that power that you have to make things more just. Use the power that you have to bring God's presence by bringing light to the situation, especially in this current, current cultural climate and current cultural moment, you know, where things are being exposed across all kinds of places, including and particularly in the church. Let's be a people who, when we're confronted with darkness, where there are things going on that need to be addressed, no matter how small, where people are being oppressed or abused or mistreated or bullied or intimidated. Let's bring those things into the light as we seek for God's rule and reign to be established, as we seek to keep the main thing, the plain thing. Why don't you stand and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.